Help! I'm confused. Oh. <laughs> and? About Christianity and homosexuality. Ladies and gentlemen, this is an exaggeration, but not a day goes by where I am not asked about homosexuality and where it fits in with church and the Bible. It's a hot topic. I get asked a lot because I'm part of church. I work for a church. I'm a church leader. And it is everywhere. And it comes up several times a week. And so we welcome back the old gang, Batstone, Blackham and Scrivener. Welcome in. Thank you for... Hold on a minute, Paul. Where is Glenn? Uh, I'm not sure he's part of the gang today. He may have pulled out last minute. He may have done. He may have done. So in memoriam of Glenn, it's just Blackham and Batstone on the topic of help. I'm confused about Christianity and homosexuality. Thank you, Paul, for joining us. Dr. Blackham, hey. for joining us again. Us is just me, actually. Well, thank you, Owen. It's good to do these topics. And as you say, I agree with you. I only really overwhelmingly engage with it when because other people ask me about it. And so I end up thinking about it and talking about it far more than I would naturally do in pastoral life and Bible teaching. You don't wake up each day and long to talk about it. I don't think I've ever woken up uh, with such an aspiration for the day. <laughs> Not even today, when I knew I was going to. <laughs> Three questions. As a whistle-stop tour, hopefully helpful video for people to go in a bit deeper later, but some starter thoughts. Three questions as ever. What's going on? What does the Bible say about these things? And what can churches do? What are we supposed to do with this topic? Paul Blackham, what is going on? This stuff is in the air we breathe, to quote Glenn Scrivener. Yeah, I mean, look, human beings find each other attractive, physically, intimately, sexually, to a great relative degree. I mean, some are much, obviously, much more universally found attractive than others and so on. That's just true. Most of us notice what's attractive about the opposite sex. Some of us notice what's desirable about both men and women. And some of us only really notice uh, how attractive physically, intimately uh, a person of the same sex is. And so it's just noticing sort of the facts about ourselves and some of us see more than others and so on. Now, the overwhelming majority of these desires and attractions uh, cannot ever lead to any relationships or activity or actions or anything. That's how it's always been for all kinds of reasons. So far, so simple. It's all straightforward. But really, in the last 150 years, particularly the Western world has had this kind of revolution because uh, in the past, it's kind of like, well, you know, those desires are there. You've got to be able, you've got to be able to say no to that. 
and uh, yet yeah, only some are appropriate or kind of idea. But the idea that's been dominant for about 150 years is that if we completely suppress or repress these sexual desires, we are damaging ourselves emotionally, psychologically, perhaps socially. And then really, since in the post-war period with relatively reliable contraceptives and so on, this revolution of saying that it's healthy, it's healthy and progressive to uh, fulfill your sexual desires rather than controlling them. Uh, so in that post-war period with relatively reliable contraceptives, that exploring and experiencing sexual desires was just become like a sort of almost like a basic human right, just the natural part of growing up. It's just part of what has to happen if you're going to mature into a proper flourishing adult. That's the situation we live in. Now, if it is a basic human right for psychological health and happiness to give proper expression to our sexual desires, and you have to do that, if it's true that you have to do that in order to become balanced and healthy and mature as you grow up and develop in life, then how can this be denied to those who only recognize the sexual attractiveness of the same sex? It's effectively saying, if you have same sex attraction, if you're homosexual in desire, you cannot mature into a proper, healthy, psychological, relational, social well-being. It's, it's, that's what it amounts to. So to create legal or social hostility against people expressing their sexual desires would seem to be an abuse of human rights. And so to affirm and defend and even celebrate um, both same-sex attraction and also same-sex relationships and expression is now seen as just a fundamental issue of justice. It's about justice and human rights because to deny that to anybody is to say to that person, you cannot be a full, healthy human being. That's how it's perceived today because of this total change in the understanding of, of how to deal with and understand our sexual desires. So it's just logically consistent <clears throat> that uh, freedom of expression should be offered to all. However, even with in society at the moment, there are some boundaries stopping people from going all out in their flourishing according to what desires they feel. There seems to be the highest axiom at the, at the moment for morality and things which are okay and passed as okay in the world seem to be as long as it doesn't cause harm and as long as there's two people consenting or, or there's mutual consent. Yep. Well, yeah, even that, not complete. You said two people consenting. Increasingly, it isn't about two people. There's throuples and all sorts of things like that, where you've got that. That's increasingly common to have uh, far more than two, certainly threes, fours, five relationship groupings. 
Uh, that's increasingly on the cards. The concept of harm, again, isn't really part of it because um, people sometimes want a certain degree of harm. Uh, let's just leave it at that delicately in order as part of all this. So really, I think consent is probably the only um, sacrosanct ethical uh, guidance. And of course, this is a separate video on the problems with the highest axiom of morality just being consent and nothing higher or no object sort of source to base any of this on because one culture can consent to things that another thinks is really ghastly and then it's just moral relativity then it's yeah it's that's right i mean if you go throughout the history of the world and through the ages age of consent and character of consent and all that hugely negotiable and variable paul blackham um what does the bible say hey and why in the last few years is there a new breed of church which is reading the Bible differently on this issue than thousands of years previous? Yeah, or, it's or prior. Or prior. It's be, it's really that shift in paradigm about understanding sexual desire is so massive and all-encompassing of society that it's all, nobody can hardly imagine that there ever was any other way of viewing sexual desire than this necessity that's a, and a requirement to express and that you define yourself in such a deep way by your sexual desire and it's almost the central thing in life and even films and books and ever songs celebrate it as if sexual desire romantic intimacy is the highest and greatest thing that human beings ever experienced. So in in that paradigm, because the, the Bible does not think like that, definitely does not think like that. So what happens is people go, um, well, the Bible must be saying what we know to be true. So um, it doesn't sound as if it's agreeing with us, but we've got to think of a way to make it sound a bit like this, because it just, it, you know, the, we, we know what we know the truth about human sexuality. So let's try and find ways of reading the Bible that make it fit into this modern world with this new paradigm. That's essentially what goes on. I mean, the overwhelming majority of contemporary Bible scholars scholars know that the Bible is not saying what this this current paradigm is saying about sex and sexuality. And so they go, look, it definitely doesn't say that. But there still are a few people who are like, oh, hang on, you can read it from this angle. You go, well, you can, but it's not it's not really what the original authors thought. If you you can, you can sort of take it in your own way. But that isn't, nobody really seriously thinks the original authors would agree with the kind of views on sexuality we have in the mainstream today. So that's what's the change. But, it, but the Bible, if we just read it straightforwardly, as it's been read around the world by churches for thousands of years all over the world, it, it basically the Bible um, doesn't see that view of sex at all in fact well first of all on sexual desire that idea that sexual like you 
your sexual desires are the most important thing about you or or a defining feature of you the core and until that you bring out those sexual desires you can't have a flourishing healthy identity and things like the bible doesn't take that view at all in fact the bible it just expects it's obvious that human beings are going to find each other sexually attractive both opposite sex and same sex and, and mixtures and all sorts of messy situations and people who are already married and people you're not married to and also the bible just has chapters that really are way beyond 18 certificate as the bible just frankly says look i know the bible the writers of the bible are sort of going uh, we know you will want to do these kinds of things you will be you'll you'll desire them you'll feel it you'll get the feels for things like that and you'll want to do them so it, it, the idea so sometimes people get all upset because they'll feel i have these attractions that means the bible already condemns me and hates me but no that's not the way the bible is the bible's like yeah obviously people feel those things that's not the problem that's that's totally the way it is in the in this world as we live in it so it assumes that we'll feel the desires and we will want to express such desires in all sorts of different ways some more messy than others the bible doesn't condemn people for feeling any of these attractions or desires but what we do about these desires and attractions is a major concern all the way through the bible whether it's opposite sex desire same sex or a bit of each or whatever the bible kind of is saying it doesn't really matter whether it's same sex or opposite or whatever most of, in the overwhelming majority of times you might feel these things that you can't do anything with it you've got to learn how to say no to them but going back to the big issue the bible does not think that saying no to our desires damages us mm. psychologically emotional and this is the massive shift yeah. in the modern age if you say no to these things you're going to damage yourself and you can't live to be a flourishing human the bible starts from exactly the opposite to say you only begin to mature as a human being when you learn how to say no to your desires not just those desires but actually you have to learn to say no to kind of almost all desires all desires because desires are deceitful they pro the bible says that about them they're deceitful they promise life and fulfillment that they cannot deliver i just had that you you asked me before we start filming uh, what I had for my lunch and I was hungry and I just ate a bag of crisps and I shouldn't do because that went against my diet it was a <laughs> deceitful desire it was a deceitful <laughs> desire promising and I'm not fulfilled by it and I wish I hadn't eaten it <laughs> it was a deceit I should have learned so Titus 2 teaches directly that God's help Titus 2 it's an amazing chapter God's help in Jesus will teach us how to say no to our passions and how to live self-controlled lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope of the Lord Jesus appearing. And that's key. It's like how to say no, how to be self-controlled. Because often what, what is unhealthy is the way that people might say, look, I feel same sense same attraction. 
I think that me, you know, I maybe hate myself. I think God hates me or I'm going to try and pray the gay away or I'm going to I have to I cannot be me. I have to become something different or I'm just going to white knuckle it with all sorts of desires and just be like, oh, I'm going to clench my fists and grit my teeth and then I'll get on top of it. That's how I'm going to do the. I'm going to pretend it doesn't exist or I'm going to use willpower. Or the Bible's like, whoa, whoa, that that is going to damage you. That's mad that you won't win. You cannot control passions that way. That's just going to lead to like all sorts of problems. So the, it's really key that, that, that we learn from Jesus how to say no. And that actually the Bible says, you like talking now about our sexuality that our does all of us were designed and made with the intention of the most intense romantic intimate relationship of all not really primarily with each other that's only a secondary optional thing for a man and a woman can get married but that's only an optional secondary thing we all have been designed for the ultimate divine romance with Jesus. The Bible starts with marriage, ends with marriage. It's all about that how we are supposed to have this intimate encounter, not so much with Tinder or Grinder things, but with the living God in Jesus by the power of the spirit. And that if we seek that kind of encounter on Tinder and Grinder, well, Grinder in this case, um we are going to be damaged because we cannot get from that what we were designed for we just get hungrier in case of my crisps or hornier rather than finding the fulfillment and the psychological health that we we, we can only get in encounter with the living god are we tapping in there slightly then to why no to the specific area of practicing homosexual because there's a larger picture which the intimacy between man and woman was designed to show off yeah that's it i mean so we were just the, the big thing is christ and church and this is like the husband and wife and if we go back to the the way we were designed there was just adam as this kind of i guess a unisex thing uh dude thing and then the Lord's like, no, that ain't good. Let's like split you in half and you can have a masculine side and a feminine side. And that, and of course, he raises other questions. There's a whole nother discussion on that. But, and then he's like, now, you, now you've got kind of community going on, relationship. And I, you can, you can join back together as a husband and a wife to become this one thing again. And, and I want you to have that experience or I want that to be at least a part of human life so that you can see the level of engagement I want with you. I'm like the divine husband and you're my bride and I'm gonna die for you and I'm gonna serve you and win you. And we, I want us to be joined together in that level of encounter and immediacy and intimacy. And so the only kind of sexual activity I've designed you for is a husband and a wife as a picture of Christ and church. That's the only one. And, and it's the, and, and because 
you you might think oh but i want like lots of partners like lots of women or lots of men or i only i only want one in this way or that way and the lord's like whoa hang on i i will teach you how to say no to all that and find in me what you're really looking for and that's like this huge thing that both jesus and the apostle paul and moses in leviticus 27 actually say that the life of total devotion the the highest form the most honorable form of life actually is not actually married life i mean church has always been really good at, at, at promoting and defending marriage and families and the importance of caring for children and bringing them up properly and all of that but that isn't our central thing we actually think there's an even better way of life which is a celibate single life because the greatest human life that's ever been lived we think and this is this is the center of all christian church is a celibate single young man who never had any and, and his mum was a virgin too celibate single you know well she was she wasn't single she did get married but you know she was a virgin i mean and so was he and it's this we're like saying that is the highest form of human life so when people say you can't be a healthy flourishing maximalized human without sexual expression we go well whoa the greatest human who's ever lived had none and that's like a deal breaker for us do we even mess with that and so you see it in Leviticus 27, this idea of un, undivided devotion to the Lord and church. And that, you know, we might say, but I want to get married. I want like a, a partner and I want children and things like that. What the Bible comes back with, Jesus does it in Matthew 19. In, 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 and he's really goes, yeah, I get that. But instead of having one or two members of your family and a, a one or two children or whatever, imagine having hundreds of children and a massive family that's like here and around the world and things. Imagine, that's what church is. Church is your real family, more important than flesh and blood, because church is forever, whereas marriage is maximum, you know, a few decades. But and, church is forever, and that's a bigger family and ultimately more fulfilling. And you're tapping into the important point there for me is there aren't arbitrary laws given by God to us just for the sake of it. It's from a father who wants the best for us. And even these marriages, Paul says, they're not just for the sake of it uh, that you, we get to tamper with any way we want. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the Genesis marriage is, is a picture of church life with Christ. I mean, that's it. All, all human sexuality is really supposed to find its meaning and logic in Christ and the church. And the whole Bible picks that theme up over and over again and ends at the end of the Bible with this vision. That is where the cosmos is heading to this massive cosmic marriage, Christ and church. And so that is the only kind of sexual ex expression that he he has authorized. For. He, he designed our bodies for, to be compatible man and a woman with that in mind. And so in, in Romans 1, when it talks about nature, 
and he says homosexual relations are against nature. What he means by that is not my individual nature, because it might be my nature, my only want, my personal feeling. I mean, it's natural for me to say the say it was I, I only wanted same sex. I only felt same sex desire. So you might say, well, that's natural for me to have same sex relationships, say right that. He's not talking about what about you as an individual. He's talking about what is the nature of humanity in Romans chapter one. He's talking about how God created the universe and how we once knew God in the Garden of Eden, but now don't know him because we wandered away from him. And he designed us with a nature that was all caught up with Christ and the church and that husband and wife paradigm of cosmic masculine and feminine issues and all that and so he's like saying but we could say but i don't feel like that that's not that's not what's meant by nature like nature is the nature of human beings the nature of human beings is to participate in the divine nature yeah. i mean that's mind-blowing stuff and it takes us to wow but that's what Paul's talking about. He's not like saying if you're a heterosexual person, but you get into in, and enter a gay relationship, that's against your nature. That's wrong, man. That's like, I mean, that is so like a postmodern way of reading sexuality that you the most important thing is you're true to your own desires. And that can, that's the only real sin that you are messing with or going against your own desires. That's the only real sin. You're like, oh my goodness, man. It, you couldn't be more alien from the world of the Bible and Jesus. Like almost like human maturity and real human being begins when we learn how to say no, no. to our desires. It's all the way through. Um, I got a few follow-ups there, but I'll stick it on at the end in a rapid fire to close. Um, Paul Blackham, what can churches do? Yeah, church. Um, all of through this, we've been mentioning church as the, our real family. And that's the thing. Like sometimes church, particularly in the modern age, has got into a way that is, is really alien from the Bible's vision of church. Like, I remember thinking, like, in the 19th century, there were, it was sometimes like church is all about getting people married and getting them to settle down with families. And marriage and family was the center of church life in the Western world, say. And you're like, well, how did that happen? Like, when we go back to the early church and in the Bible and this, this is a high vision, celibate singleness. And you go back to the early church. And there, the church was considered a threat to marriage and family because people would become Christians and say, oh, I'm not going to get married now. I found a new kind of family. I don't need to get married. I don't need to, like, have a dinner, a family dynasty, because if royal families started doing that, it was a big threat to politics. And someone like Chris Austin got in massive trouble because members of the royal family were saying, no, I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to follow Jesus and, and, and serve church and give my money away. So we were often seen as a, as, as a threat to this established traditions that everyone needs to get married. Everyone has to have kids. 
And church was there saying, oh, no, you don't. Like, church can be your family. Christ can be your lover. And that is, that's the highest form of human life in many ways. But in the modern days, in a way, church sometimes be became just so part of the surrounding culture. And it was like, uh, only we'll only get together once a week for an hour lecture or an hour like praise session or whatever, maybe two hours if, 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 if it's that sort of thing. And we'll see you, see you next week. And so it was at best like a hobby like almost like a little club that you would attend once a week. that in the bible how can that be your true family if it's an hour lecture is no so church is your 24 7 family we're always church we don't go to church we are church all the time sharing life together completely so that's critical in this critical because if you are saying look my my desire is say I only find people of the same sex attractive for romance and intimate. I never want to get married as a husband and wife situation, but I need family. I need intimacy. I need all that goes with that. Yeah, that's what church is for. So that's why the idea that oh well, see you next week for an hour's lecture or something. That's never gonna do it. So church has to be this this family that's we're always sharing life all the time in different ways. But it's the place where we can be really honest about ourselves, like all the different communities have an agenda. Oh, you ought to be getting married or pu push, pushing agendas about getting married, not getting married, hook up with people. All sorts of things. Churches, we, we don't have, we shouldn't be having any of that sort of agenda. We can be honest about ourselves. We're not going to be judged. We don't have to conform to expectations. It's the place or the family where we can talk about what we really desire. Be honest about that because we're not going to be judged. We're already accepted. God's already said, you're right with me. You're good forever. I love you forever. You're there's no judgment on you. So we don't have to go, oh, I can't talk about that part of my life. Or oh, that's what I really feel. I can't talk about that because what if that means uh, God doesn't like me anymore? Well, it's like he's already said he loves you. He's already accepted you through Jesus. You, we can be completely honest with no judgment about our desires, temptations, struggles, yearnings with people who shouldn't be shocked by us because they probably, we all have these same sorts of things in different areas of life. They won't judge us. They're on the same journey. People who are also learning to say no to their own desires in all kinds of ways. So it's like that. We're all like on a pilgrimage together. People, we're all messed up and messy people, but we it's the, it's the community where we can be honest with each other and help each other and challenge one another to say hey hang on like you are you aren't saying no very effectively in life and you're getting messed up and things so it's people who we who love us enough to challenge us be honest with us help us encourage us you know we're all trying to put to death all kinds of addictions obsessions fantasies things like that church is the only community where that can be done with real honesty and compassion love and truth there it is Beautiful. You seem to be saying, Paul, that church has gone astray because it's been 
basically saying family values is our message. I'm yeah, not sure I got a question. I'm no, not sure it's I got a not question. our message. It's not our message. Like I remember in the eighties and nineties, I remember receiving stuff uh, aimed at Christians, urging us to get behind the Disney Disney stuff and other stuff because it's family friendly. And I was like, what? Like the the notion was that somehow we were a kind of propaganda machine that was trying to bring about society where everybody would just have, everybody get married, everybody have uncomplicated children who were happy to watch Disney films or something. And I'm like, one, Disney is full of messages that are fantastically anti-Christian. It's like an incredibly anti-Christian propaganda machine and always has been actually. It's not as if it suddenly is, it always has been that. So one, that upset me on that level. But secondly, that is not our message. Our message is fall in love with Jesus, look forward to getting married to him. Now, yeah, maybe you'll get married. Maybe it'll, it, maybe it'll be nice and simple and you'll be able to get watch, watch like family. But that, but that maybe not. Like the in the Bible, lots of the marriages presented to us are messy, complicated, difficult. It's like our message is something much more deep and profound, and it's about Jesus. And it isn't telling everyone to get married and have kids. It actually says, if you can, don't. If you can, devote yourself to church, to Jesus, to serving one another. But it's not anti-family, of course. It's like got lots of good stuff for marriage and family. But it isn't our message. And too many churches run around, run their clock around families and not single celibate. So the single celibates seem to get palmed off till next week. And sometimes you've said in the past, churches actually shut down through the summer yeah. because of the school holidays like loads of churches basically organize themselves on the assumption everybody is involved with getting children into school school terms pickup times after school school holidays after everything's like that now if you are a celibate single same-sex attracted person in a church that is utterly organized on the assumption that you are in a husband-wife marriage with children. Of course, there's an implicit message. This church isn't really for you. This is only really organized for married people with children. And you've got to think there's all the people who are past childbearing age or younger than that, or all the celibate singles and increasingly in the western world the majority of people in churches are, are singles like and so it's an incredibly weird thing to organize the calendars and events and everything on the assumption that well really because implicitly it's saying really you ought to be married with children and it's a it's a bad thing to do because particularly you can go from sort of like july august september with the whole entire church just nothing for you yeah. in a way church should be organized around the celibate singles who are always there 
always part of of the center of life. And then sh sh in a way, they're married with children. They all, because the thing is, there's a loneliness. There can be a huge loneliness about the celibate single life. And the thing is, the people who are married with children are, don't experience that level of loneliness because they have each other and they're so in a way they need less attention at the center of church life but that's raising even bigger questions rapid fire spin-off questions to tie some of those thoughts all together so we've got about 27 seconds per answer for these you ready yeah church can really hurt because we're so close we can hurt each other and there may be some people deeply scarred. As glorious as church is, it also involves, and I actually think this is part of the glory, real hurt. And how you work through that, I think, is part of salvation. That's why I don't think you can be saved without being church. Oh, yeah, definitely. What do you say in 27 seconds to someone who would love church family to share and be open, but they've been scarred, betrayed and hurt? No, I get that. And that's why you what you like, what I want to say to them is like, it could be that they've been to a church that just isn't ready to have this kind of conversation at all. I mean, that's let's just be honest. I do know some church families who are just nowhere close to being ready to have this sort of a conversation yet. So I can't see an easy way for them to do it. But I do think they they like church itself don't give up on that there's lots of like and this is sometimes how i say to ministers uh you be honest about your desires and problems and struggles in life so that people in the, your church family can know it's okay to talk about yeah. all kinds of things regularly have these sorts of conversations through sermons through pastoral meetings also so that people go oh okay it is okay for me to say in this church family do you know i'm really i feel this and i'm really struggling with that or how can i ever be fulfilled if i'm feeling this or desiring this or we want people to know you can have that sort of conversation i'm not you know we're not going to be shocked we might be not ready to for it quite but that's that's good we need to be ready for it we need to share life like that that's what i feel as you did about your unwholesome crisp binge at lunch. Oh my goodness, I, yeah. People will be shocked by that. Um, next. Uh, hold on. This is basically a yes or no. Is this, this is my understanding. And my question is, am I right or am I wrong? But we shouldn't as church, linked to your third answer, really give a monkey to a degree about what the world does because Paul says what business is it of ours to judge outside but judge within the church Jesus says make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded you Yeah. And when we have tried to lecture the world or make homosexuality illegal, it's not 
because it's the Christian thing to do. It's just because sort of westernized, semi-Christianized, moral, Victorian moralists were the majority and didn't particularly like this type of sin and yet ignored loads of others in their own lives. Is that a general correct emphasis? Yes, it is. In the, And that church, we've been in this business for thousands of years, church. We know laws and the statute book is not how you change people. You basically can annoy people you by passing laws and trying to ban them and control them and things like that. But you can't. The only thing we're actually interested in is will you love Jesus and trust him with all your heart, mind, soul and strength? Now, can you make a law to enforce that? No. So we're like, OK, well, then there's that, that's there's no point in messing about with this fundamentally, because if a person says, look, I'm in a in a same sex relationship what are you going to do with that in about church and i'm saying well if you're not coming to church and you're, you're nothing because the every single area of human life mm. money power sex clothes food entertainment work everything is radically impacted by jesus there's no point in me going oh well i'm, I'm actually gonna just point my finger at this thing in your life that's just weird and judgmental and not going to lead to anything good. Really, as you rightly say, we're not interested in trying to get the police or the government to enforce, make people behave like Christians. But what we are going to say is, look, when you start to follow Jesus, everything in your life is going to have a revolution in it. And always are sex, sexuality and relationships. You've been saying, Paul, about saying no, which James in the Bible says, say no to things. Does Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount actually say, though, that our orientations can be wrong? Because even if we think inside, before we sort of act on them, is that what he's getting at? The Bible is brutally honest about the human heart and our desires. And it says we're a messy, like chaotic turmoil inside. I mean, even the modern world knows that, that... And we can say, oh, I totally love such and such a thing. And the next day, no, I hate that. And we're all over the place with stuff. That's just fact. And the, what the Bible, it, the Bible's like, yeah, sure, you're going to feel all sorts of attraction desires. And that's the way it is. What Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you look at a woman in order to have her, you've committed adultery. So he's, he doesn't seem to be saying, if you notice that a woman's attractive, you're already going to hell. Like, he isn't saying that. He's like, well, <laughs> that's that's just life. But if you notice, oh, she's attractive or he's attractive. And then you go, oh, man. Yeah. And then you start looking in. We all know what that looks like. It's the creepy look. It's the creepy. Jesus is saying, don't have a creepy look. Once you're doing the creepy luck, you're already doing it in your mind. He's, he knows human beings. Of course, the creepy luck's the problem. Everybody knows it. So there it is, everyone. Joint things don't exist for the sake of it. We have feelings and desires and bits and bobs and body parts from God. They're best used and channeled in the direction he wants. So there's a call to trust there. You learn to trust Jesus in church life, where you get an even bigger family and vision of the Lord and his people. Do not run a church which is an hour lecture a week and expect it to flourish. Connect throughout the week. 
in different ways. Anything else, Paul Blackham, before I thank you and say goodbye? I, I probably said more than enough. Have you got a jar of flowers in milk? Yeah, uh, oh, it's over there, there. No, it's actually a white vase with a glaze, a, a grey glaze at the top. And they're plastic flowers anyway. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Well, Paul, thank you again for joining us, well, me, on this hot topic. There we are. Thank you, Owen. Until next time, I hope others are as blessed listening to your wisdom as I have been in this session. Okay. Until next time, farewell, dear friend. And bye to you, Glenn, wherever you are. <laughs> okay. <laughs>